Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Before I introduce my guest today, I want to thank my listeners from around the globe for designating the Win Without Competing show a favorite on Blog Talk Radio. In the next few weeks, I will introduce a new segment in which I will respond to your career and personal questions for which my Right Fit Method will have a response. Please email your questions to the Right Fit Method at winwithoutcompeting.com or message me via Blog Talk Radio. Be sure to let me know if you would like your name mentioned on air. If I am planning to present your question, I will email you prior to the show. A sneak peek. In July, I will interview an acclaimed author who had four books on the New York Times bestseller list in one year. According to Publishers Weekly, she is the reigning queen of the vampire novel. More about her in future shows. Stay tuned. On to today's guest. Robert R. Horton, multifaceted creative entrepreneur. My guest is Mr. Robert Horton, the chairman of Alchemix Corporation, a cutting-edge alternative energy company, which he established in 1998. An expert in his field, Mr. Horton has been active in energy and environmental technology since 1980. Among his activities, he organized, managed, and sold the China Coal Pipeline Company to Enron in 1997. Prior to that, Horton, in partnership with the American Broadcasting Company, organized and created the world's largest travel franchise company. Since childhood, through the influence of his clinical psychologist mother, Robert has been a student of human personality. Beginning in 1975, in addition to his other career interests, he began working on what has become the interviewing method, a precise and comprehensive means of distinguishing core personality traits. In the early 1980s, he founded the Carefree Institute and, with the help of the Educational Testing Service of Arizona State University, developed the Interview, a comprehensive personality assessment tool. The interview has been used by tens of thousands of individuals over the last 20 years. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Robert. Thank you, Dr. Arlene. I, uh, you just described a person I think I would like to know. It was very flattering. It's my pleasure, and shortly everyone will learn more about you. Tell us about your childhood. 
I'm especially interested in hearing about your early entrepreneurial adventures. Uh, Dr. Arlene, I I grew up uh, in a peripatetic way. I, I lived a lot of different places, uh, mainly uh, by accident of fate. Uh, my uh, dad came back from the Second World War. Uh, he died. My my mother remarried. Uh, my stepfather was uh, a colonel in the reserves and got called back up. So we moved around quite a lot, but. Mainly, I lived in the Deep South, and then uh, in eighth grade, I moved uh, to Illinois, and uh, and and after that, uh, I I was educated and graduated uh, from Illinois State, uh, rather from um, uh, from Southern Illinois University. But uh, my mother was um, my mother was, as you said earlier, uh, in the end, a, a clinical psychologist. But she encouraged me along the way to try things. And I think the first entrepreneurial stint that I did was that uh, I, um, uh, we had a little property and, and we had peat, we had an old sawmill on it and, and uh, when it uh, degraded it became peat. And we put that in brown paper bags and I sold it out of the back of a, uh, a wagon when I was about 10. And I also sold lemonade on the golf course, and uh, I had a radio show when I was 11, uh, and it was just a little junior high school thing where uh, the, uh, a little girl from the school and I uh, played um, uh, played records and and did request, uh, and uh, I actually uh, I danced. Uh, I was living in Florida when I was uh, younger, and and I, I knew how to dance. And when I moved to Illinois, uh, one of the um, uh, one of the mothers uh, wanted the kids to learn how to dance, and so she organized them and paid me a dollar for every kid that showed up. And so I actually made uh, a little money teaching dancing when I was in the eighth grade. So uh, I, right along, I was doing things, not making much. I actually sold seeds at one time on, on one of the Air Force bases when I was real small. So I, my, my mother encouraged me, and I, and I did all of this, but because I guess I would stick my, my nose in and do it, and I didn't mind doing it, uh, it caught on. Let me ask you, did your mother encourage you because she wanted you to become self-confident, and have good interpersonal skills. Why do you think your mother encouraged you? I think the main thing with her is that she wanted me to sample a lot of different things. Uh, she, um, uh, I tried different sports and, until I found one that I liked uh, and and seemed to excel. Uh, it seemed to excel. And but I tried musical instruments and I tried modern dance and I tried all kinds of different things uh, at her, you know, just because she thought it was a good idea. And uh, she wanted me to see a large rather than a small world. Well, I think that as we peek and look into more detail your career, we will see that your mother's early encouragement helped you to go in a variety of different ways. Would you agree? Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any question about it, and I. I, I think that more than anything else, uh, she gave me the confidence. Having done all of these things, gave me the confidence to uh, to try other things. Uh, as I grew older, they they weren't so daunting as they might have been uh, for someone who hadn't had uh, the the breadth of experiences that she gave me. I know that you unilaterally decided to attend a military academy. I know that when we chatted before the show, you apparently on your own sent in an application and was accepted. What prompted you to do that? Well, actually, there was a, uh, there was a young man who had, who had recently graduated, and he was a bit older than I. I, I, was, uh, I, was, I just finished my freshman year in high school, and uh, he had just graduated uh, and uh, happened to be Culver Military Academy. And he thought that I was a promising kid. And my mother was widowed, and he thought it would be a terrific influence. So he took it upon himself, uh, and it was just a, a, a lucky thing for me because uh, it was a wonderful education, uh, and uh, it was a real stabilizing influence in my life, a great classical education. But... Uh, it was really the impetus of another uh, another young man, but 
he took it upon himself to to drive me up there and and uh, make sure that the scholarship examinations were administered and so forth. And in fact, uh, my mother uh, got the acceptance and and notification of the scholarship, not having known that I really went. What did she say? Was she surprised that you did that without sharing the information uh, with her? Well, it it it, it, was, it was one of these things where she know she knew that I'd I'd gone on a, on a trip with this fellow because he was someone that was known to us. So it wasn't as if I'd stolen away. Uh, but it was one of those things where uh, she was someone who cared enough about education and saw it as a clear opportunity. And, and so in spite of the fact that it wasn't her uh, initiative, she, uh, she was glad to support it. Going further, early in your career, you worked for two brokerage firms. At AG Edwards, you organized and managed the brokerage office. Right. I, I, that's exactly right. I know from our discussion that you did not enjoy management. Why not? Or at least management uh, of the brokerage office. Right. And it turns out that uh, I had been successful. Uh, I, I started my career in Colorado Springs uh, with Betcher & Company, which was a New York Stock Exchange member firm, which is, was acquired later by Kemper, and uh, Betcher, uh, at Betcher, I was a salesman. I'd been very successful, and I was recruited by A.G. Edwards uh, to open an office for them in Colorado Springs. And what I had enjoyed about uh, being in the brokerage industry was, in fact, the relationship that I had with my clients. And I was so honored by, uh, by being offered the opportunity to uh, to manage, to establish and manage a brokerage office for a prestigious firm, uh, I uh, I let my ego uh, override any real thought of not doing it. And um, in fact, uh, what I'm good at is uh, is relating one on one, but not so much. Uh, uh, I'm much better at selling than I am managing. Well, I know that. Um at the beginning of your career at this time with the brokerage firms that you started to learn about conceptual sales and eventually became an expert. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about conceptual sales and how you became an expert. Yes. In, in fact, uh, when I met my wife and she asked me what I did, I, uh, I said, well, I'm a conceptual salesman. And what I mean by that is it's selling ideas uh, rather than uh, necessarily selling tangible things. Uh, in the brokerage industry, for example, uh, you, you sell uh, the idea that, that a company will succeed and that paper that represents ownership will become more valuable. Uh, in uh, in other aspects, uh, for example, if you're uh, if you're involved with the interview, what we're selling there is uh, is a concept, really. It's not, uh, although we you you wind up with uh, with something that's printed out about you and a profile. Uh, in fact, it's a concept that's being sold. Uh, when you when you start uh, when you start organizing uh, a a new technology and you're raising money for that, uh, what you're doing is you're selling people on the idea that the future can be better. Uh, or that you have something that will address an, a, a problem that currently exists or a challenge that currently exists uh, in a better way that it, than it's being done. So it's, uh, it's, a very, it's very different than selling a Caterpillar tractor or a Ford automobile uh, selling ideas. What prompted you to begin um, or enter the world of brokerage? Well, that's that's a that's a good question. Uh, I I was actually I, I graduated in political science and I was doing graduate work in community development, uh, which happened to be what Barack Obama st did after uh, his stint at Columbia, and. It turns out that I was actually active in, at Southern Illinois uh, doing that, and I liked it well enough, but it turns out that it didn't pay very well. 
and although with a master's degree uh, I would I would make a bit more money uh, doing that than if I was just coming in off the street uh, I did the sums and found that I was already spending more money in college than I would make as a community developer and I was uh, actually investing a little bit of money uh, that I that I'd made working uh, while in college and I really enjoyed uh, the the whole stock market scene and one day I was uh, in the brokerage office and I was talking to a, a professor uh, and he was asking me what I was going to do when I left school and I said well I, I intend to be do community development we talked about how little it paid and uh, and he said well do you like this and I said yes I like it very much and he said well uh, why don't you do this and it hadn't occurred to me but it was something I really enjoyed doing it. And as soon as he asked the question, and, and I couldn't uh, I couldn't come up with a good response for why I wouldn't do it, I began turning it over in my head, and and I became uh, enamored with the idea. And then I I threw myself in that direction. When you left A.G. Edwards, was it your choice to leave because you did no longer wanted to be a manager? Why did you leave A.G. Edwards? and join E.F. Hutton to become a fundraiser for motion pictures? Well, the, um, uh, in fact, it was my choice. Uh, once I had fairly established the A.G. Edwards office, in fact, I took one of the fellows that I had recruited and hired, and I made him manager of the office just because I didn't like the, uh, the job. And then I was uh, contacted uh, by E.F. Hutton, and they were uh, they were organizing a fund, a special purpose small business investment company, uh, that that was putting a pool of money uh, together to make uh, to make film or to fund films, and they were having trouble selling it, and uh, they somehow got my name, and and I. I became involved with that, and I, I went to New York, and I ran the book for all the brokers. Uh, there were some 3,000 E.F. Hutton brokers at the time, and so I ran the book uh, for the brokers across the country from, from Manhattan, and uh, it was a very exciting uh, exciting time to do that, and in fact, the fund did very well. We, we funded Gandhi and Hopscotch, which, which were two films that did very well, and a number of films that didn't do so well. But uh, but on balance, uh, it, it, the the reason it was a portfolio of films uh, was really to uh, to limit the risk, so that if if all of the films didn't work, uh, so that people would at least get a return. But we had Gandhi was a huge success, and everybody did very well. Well, clearly, your ability to raise money is a testimony to your conceptual sales skills. If you were pitching me to invest $50 million in a particular film, what would you say to me to convince me to invest? Well, the, the first thing that I, that I would want to know is who you are. I'd want to know what you're interested in. Uh, I would want to know uh, what uh, your style, velocity, uh, and uh, intellectual capacity is. But mainly, I would concentrate on your values. And so the, to know a person is to know what they care about. Uh, the easiest way to find out what they care about is to find out where they, how they spend their scarce resources, such as time and money. So uh, the idea is, is that uh, it, there would be some films that, that you would have no interest in because of your values. And I would know better than to pursue, uh, to pursue you uh, on that tact. If, on the other hand, I found uh, as you pursue the right fit in employment, in this case, I would be trying to find the right fit uh, between your interest, uh, your core interest, and the product that I have. And if I'm not able to meet your objectives, which would support your core interest, I wouldn't pursue you at all. And sometimes, uh, you know, the best thing that a good salesman can do is step away and say, I'd better chase another rabbit because this person really won't be interested in what I've got because it's of no interest to them. Let's say that I was interested in the Gandhi film, stepping back a number of years. Let's say sure. you established that that was, you know, something that I would value, recognizing 
that the film had not been created yet, what would you say to me to entice me to give you $50 million? Making, of course, um, we don't want to make any assumptions. Um, Clearly, I write about make no assumptions, open those doors. I expect you would have checked out that I could afford to give you $50 million. Would that be correct, Robert? You wouldn't be chasing me unless I have the money, right? That's, that's right. And uh, the first thing you have to do when you're selling is that you, um, you have to make sure that the person has money and that they want more. And so that's, that gets you to first base. The second thing that you do is that, is that you have to determine what your objectives are. Okay, and the objectives have a lot to do with your values. Now, you know, if if we qualified that that you were at least uh, at least passingly interested in film, then what we would do is establish what your values were. And in the case of a, a of a script uh, about Gandhi, you would want to have you would want to have a high empathy value, for example, and you would you would uh, I would try to establish whether or not you had an interest in the in the general uh, theme of what Gandhi was up to in one thing and another, uh, because because unless there was something that you were getting for it, un- unless it was just money, in other words, if we were just if all you were interested in is, is money, I would establish that and I would and I would try to meet your objective by letting you know how much money you would you would make. Uh, but the the reality is, is is that money is only one of many values that that you might have paramount to, to make an investment. Uh, otherwise, uh, charitable foundations wouldn't work. So, and 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 then what I would do is is that I would try to uh, I would try to make my product uh, what I had available for you meet your objectives and show you how it met your objectives. And once uh, and once that was established, then uh, then the circle would pretty much be closed. So in essence, you would be doing, what, as you had said, what I would be doing. You would be sure that what you proposed was the right fit for me. Right. And one of the things that I would like to, to comment on, on you, you just brought it up a, a moment ago, but I thought that one of the most powerful concepts uh, uh, in uh, Win Without Competing uh, is the whole business of not making any assumptions. Correct. You really do. You really do have to uh, uh, to probe and find out what's going on, and not assume uh, that a person can or can't do something. I mean, you might find that uh, that they have a that they're living uh, at a at a relatively modest level, but they've got a huge trust in the background. Uh, you, you just never know, and so what you have to do is that, is that you have to uh, you have to probe and find out who you're dealing with. You know, obviously, uh, you know most people that are in their 20s uh, haven't accumulated wealth on their own, and so you're better prospects if you were a, a, a broker or someone trying to find money for film would be to find people that are more established in life. So. I mean, you do certain qualifications because you can't just chase everyone. Right. Uh, on the on, on the other hand, uh, you you don't make gross assumptions uh, w- uh, about a person until you've uh, until you've uh, had the opportunity to do some probing, which is as you say exactly what you do in uh, with your method. Right. Yeah. With pick, probe, and pitch. Exactly. Well, a little later on in the interview, we will talk about. Um, interview and I think we can then kind of come back to some of the things that you've said to pick up what you had mentioned for example you mentioned I think velocity and uh, perhaps then you can define some of the things that you would be looking at when you're trying to determine whether the person is the right fit in terms of being a qualified prospect Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. At E.F. Hutton, you established a relationship with the American Broadcasting Company. How did that lead to your next adventure? Well, let me step back just a moment and and say that that I called on the executive vice president of um, 
not I'm sorry, not the executive vice president, the vice president of corporate development of American Broadcasting, and it was a cold call. And it was my thought that what I had was a portfolio of motion pictures that were to be made, and here uh, was a, a broadcasting company that needed uh, that, that that needed entertainment to put on the airwaves. And I I thought my thought was that rather than selling uh, selling these this portfolio on a onesie twosie one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a crack uh, basis that perhaps I could sell the entire thing to American Broadcasting. Well, in fact, they thought it was a sufficiently good idea uh, to do that that they took it to the board, and then it turned out that Leonard Goldenson, who who established American Broadcasting. Uh, uh, told me and told his board that he had promised Aaron Spelling, uh, who is who has done uh, such a big job uh, with television programs and, and now movies, that it, if he ever went into the movie business, that he would do it with Aaron Spelling. And so that uh, that relationship didn't go any further. In other words, they had no interest in in doing the international film investors thing. But I established the relationship. Uh, with the uh, vice president of corporate development, he and I became friends. And at a later time, when I saw something that I thought might interest ABC, uh, I the the door was open, and I had the entree as a result of the uh, of, of the film association. I think it's very important that you kept the relationship. I don't think that. Um, many people would always hold on to the relationship. Obviously, you valued it, and even though you didn't know when you would be going back to that person, you wanted to keep in touch. Am I correct, Robert? Yeah, that that's true, but, but one of the things about entrepreneurs is that they're, they're pretty spontaneous. And so this was a fellow that I truly liked, and and because I liked him, I wanted uh, and and also I mean it, it wasn't lost on on me that he was in a position of authority, but I really liked him, and so uh, so it was a natural thing to extend the relationship, but because because I understand that that relationship and networks are what support you in this world, uh, it was a natural thing for me to do. But, uh, you know, I think that one of the things that as I was thinking about having the conversation with you today and knowing that we're going to talk about entrepreneurship a little a little bit is that uh, entrepreneurs are probably uh, the most spontaneous, uh, least um, uh, systematic uh, business people out there. Uh, as a group, because uh, they are they are they are going they're running for the the opening in the line all of the time, and sometimes they don't know till the last moment that it even exists. So uh, yes, I did I I did pursue the relationship. It's good policy to pursue relationships and build networks, but I think that works best. At least it has for me when when there's um, uh, there is uh, real. Uh, chemistry between the people, and and you should. Uh, I, I think it. I think people that you like tend to like you, and so forth. So, uh, so that was really the basis of the extending the relationship. Uh, even though obviously I, I saw it as being valuable as well. What happened next in terms of the travel network? Yes. Uh, well, this was a company that um, uh, that I brought to. Uh, it, it, it had begun. It had been begun by another individual, uh, but his organization was not well developed, and so I saw it as an opportunity. So I brought it uh, as, a, as an opportunity to uh, American Broadcasting, and uh, I persuaded them that this was uh, something that they should do. They did do it. I became their partner. Uh, after we established, after we had purchased the company, I became the executive vice president in charge of marketing, and so I was responsible for dreaming up the things that we would do for uh, the agencies. Uh, for example, I created the wide world of music, which had to do with um, uh, with bringing uh, bringing bands together and having festivals. Every time you move a band, it's all the members of the band plus their families and so forth and so on. 
So if you have a band contest and 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 you run all of the business through your travel agency, you know that your franchise travel agency, then you have an enormous amount of business that you're giving them. I also invented a concept called um, uh, the amateur, which was uh, A-M-A-T-O-U-R, which was professionally run amateur golf uh, tournaments around the world. Well, in a golf tournament, it's, it's a couple of hundred people, and you you know you you wind up arranging for them to to go to a resort and play golf, and it's a matter of days and thousands of dollars, and uh, and all of this was going through the individual uh, the individual agencies, and so that was that was my job was to create the product. Uh, that would be unique uh, uh, to the agencies. I would be the person that would go to Hertz and get the uh, get the best rate available for all of the agencies, and they would be negotiated uh, by my office. So that's the kind of work that I was doing when I was uh, when I was in that capacity. And then I believe you sold, right? Yes, uh, uh, the, the the company was sold. Uh, I received uh, I received some money. And um, uh, that uh, anyway, that you know, that's that's what happened. ABC sold the company, okay. and and I, I, of course they sold my interest as well, and I was paid off. You entered the world of energy and environmental technology. What prompted you to do that? Uh, in 1980, uh, when when um, uh, the travel company was sold. Uh, we had an energy crisis. Uh, you may recall that we had lines going around the block to get gasoline because of OPEC and all of that. And although I didn't have a background in energy, knew very little about it, uh, I knew that uh, we didn't have uh, an energy policy in the U.S. And I and I saw that we were going to have some terrible problems down the road. And of course, we've seen some of that now. And I became intrigued, and I, uh, I I went to work trying to educate myself in the area, and uh, so that that was really what provoked me. I was trying to th- think of what what the next act was going to be, and energy seemed uh, to be something that was that was a, a big problem, and offered a great deal of opportunity. You founded four companies assuming the major responsibility for fundraising. You yes. raised more than $150 million. Yes. Tell us briefly about how you negotiated and sold rights to Enron for the China Coal Pipeline Company. Again, we are interested in your pitching talents. I want my listeners to really learn to be expert in pitching. Okay. Uh, the uh, at the time that I that I made the sale to to Enron, uh, well, first of all, let me describe what this was. This was a, a 500 mile or 700 kilometer pipeline uh, that uh, that moved coal in a water slurry from central China to the to the coast. Most of the ch- coal in China is is in the interior, and most of the people are on the coast. So uh, I became partners, uh, our China Coal Pipeline Company, which I founded, became partners with the Chinese uh, uh, coal ministry. And we worked together on doing the engineering for this pipeline, and we used uh, an Italian engineering company, Snam Progetti, uh, as our principal engineers. And I took the, the, uh, uh, the project uh, along uh, far enough so that we got all the approvals for this with the cha- state of China, and uh, we had the engineering for the the pipeline right of way, and that was all approved. And uh, at that time, Enron was the largest energy developer in the world, and so uh, I contacted them, understanding that the actual execution of something that size, the the the, the group that I headed was really a peanut of a company compared to uh, an Enron and, and had no experience in doing anything this size. This was a $700 million project uh, 11 years ago, so it was a big project. And uh, so what I did is that I identified them as someone that might be interested in that. Uh, obviously, they had the money uh, at that time, uh, and so we undertook 
uh, first discussions. I was spending a lot of time in China, so I actually contacted them in their Beijing office. And uh, we, um, uh, we had preliminary conversations. Uh, we weren't, uh, I, I didn't uh, ever call on anybody else. And I made the sale because the identification was the right sale uh, to the right uh, uh, client, uh, just as, as your uh, career matching uh, uh, works based on fit. Uh, we didn't really have to broadcast uh, our uh, uh, our willingness to sell to anyone. We went to the to the logical partner, and we sold them on the idea of doing it. And it was it was right down their alley, and and that's how we did it. But uh, it it was very logical for them because they were building a portfolio, and they were they were building power stations and so forth. And this was a way of supplying uh, supplying coal. To power stations that we would be built on the East Coast, when otherwise they would be constrained by uh, the rail system in China. So it was a way of their vertically integrating, and that's how I sold it to them that they they didn't want to be dependent upon the Chinese rail system, uh, and this was a way to to uh, in run that. And so that was how the sale was made. And so they hadn't thought about in running the the. Um, uh, the Chinese rail system, but uh, once the suggestion was given them, they saw it was a logical extension of what they were trying to do in China anyway. I like the fact that you identified the one right fit and were able to successfully accomplish your objective. I also think that you're an expert in terms of managing the process, taking well, charge, and step-by-step step getting the job done. Yeah, it's been my exper- experience, uh, Dr. Arlene, that, um, that if, you, if you're careful uh, to put yourself in, in, and pre-qualify who you're going to talk to about something that you want to sell, that your uh, that your uh, close rate uh, goes up astronomically, uh, and in fact, all you have is time if you sell. And so, what you need to do is is make sure that you're not wasting it. And so, it takes a relatively small amount of time to disqualify most uh, most candidates in any field. And then concentrate, as you say, on finding uh, the the right fit, uh, and then your success rate is going to to be much higher, just as it will be in uh, in, in what you're doing in career counseling. I also think that when you talk about cold calling, early on in the conversation, you mentioned that you do cold calling. I cold called ABC. It's terrific. I think it's terrific because many people are hesitant to do cold calling. I know that you read Win Without Competing, so you know that I advise people to not blast their resume from Burbank to Bombay, but to pick up the phone, introduce themselves to the employer that appears to be the right fit and figure out through pick, probe, and pitch whether, in fact, the employer is the right fit, and then to show how he or she matches the specs. So I think that the fact that you comfortably do cold calling is fantastic. Maybe you could make some suggestions as to how to make people comfortable with cold calling. Well, I know you do uh, it naturally, and so do I. But well, yeah, I, I I think I I know how to answer the question. First of all, it's hard. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, even if you're good at it, it's hard because the rejection rate is high. Uh, on the other hand, if if you are asking people for help, uh, as you point out uh, uh, in your book, I mean one of the th- one of the things that that you, which I think absolutely is a successful way to go, is to is to perhaps call the company 
and chat with someone or chat with someone that you know is affiliated with the company and try to get the inside track. But if you ask people for help, uh, people will help you. And so if you're if you take the the tack that you're trying to help them, and what you're trying to do is that you have something valuable, and if you truly believe you have something valuable that you would like to introduce, whether it be one of my products or yourself in your case, uh, then if you think you're if you believe that it, in your heart and in your core that you're really trying to help uh, solve a, a challenge for the person that you're calling all of a sudden uh, you don't feel like you're asking and that they're doing you a favor you turn it on its head and all of a sudden uh, you feel as if you're being generous uh, rather than selfish and it's a it's it, conceptually it's a it's it, there there's a big uh, there's a big switch that, that gets thrown there as soon as you figure out how, how you can position yourself so that you're actually helping the person you're calling rather than, uh, and you're offering something of value rather than pestering them or something of that nature. Well, I totally agree because I think that people that are uncomfortable about cold calling are focusing in on themselves rather than what they have to offer the other person. So I just, totally just, you're, exa- you're exactly right, Dr. Arlene. That's that's uh, that's a that's a very nice distinction. Passion is career fuel. What role has passion played in propelling you to career success? Um, again, let me back back up just a step. The I think passion is driven by your interest. I think the kind of intelligence that you develop, for example, is is driven by your interest. So uh, I believe that we're good at what we like because we do it often, practice it, learn about it. Uh, and so uh, we will always be best at what we're passionate about because it, it tends to, the same things tend to interest us throughout our life. And so I think identifying your individual passion and and being able to state it to yourself uh, would, for your business, for the career business, uh, be uh, essential to to finding uh, work that will really turn your lights on. And um, uh, I, I in, in the work that I do, uh, the psychological work I do, I, I emphasize uh, trying to get aligned with what's important to you. It's all about values is the way I explain it. But whatever amount of energy that you've got or intelligence and so forth, uh, that will be expanded to the extent that you're doing it along the lines of your own interest. It's interesting that many of my coaching clients come to me after they read Win Without Competing. And one of the things that they want to focus in on has to do with their core identity and it's something that they want to talk about so a good part of that is related to passion and they're having difficulty finding their passion so do you have any suggestions there Uh, i mentioned this earlier but but uh, there are some tricks that you can, uh, without without taking a psychological profile or, or or becoming too expert in all of this. If you if you ask yourself, what do I do with scarce resources? The the most common scarce resources that people have are time and money. And so if you ask yourself, okay, when I have a weekend or if I have an evening free and so forth, what do I do with it? Okay, what do I want to do with it? And if if you ask yourself what you want to do, not what you need to do, but what you want to do, you'll it will pretty much describe what you care about. And then what you do is that you take whatever that is. I mean, for example, if if um, if 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 you if you want to if you spend your time uh, if you want to spend your time reading, then you say, okay, what kinds of things do I read? You know, what am I interested in? What am I educating myself on? What am I, what am I exercising the muscle of my brain about? 
And that's what you're interested in, and that's what you're passionate about. And so if you spend some time concentrating on uh, where you spend your, scare, your own scarce resources, it will tell you where your passion lies. Well, what's interesting is that some people have difficulty differentiating between what they need to do and what they want to do. That isn't easy for lots of people either, Robert. Well, and it's critical that you make the distinction. Um, you know, Maslow has his hierarchy of needs and food, 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 clothing, shelter, sex, and so forth. Okay, and those are needs. Okay, and so, uh, and one of the things that happens, particularly in your business, uh, I've observed, is that somebody will take a job, and w- they take the job because they need the they need the income that gives them the esteem of their family and their their mate and all of the rest of that, and, and they have to pay their bills and so forth. But then they're there for a while, and and after they've gotten comfortable, you know, they their head comes out of the foxhole, and they look around and said, you know, I don't really like this very much. Right. This is this is not what I want. And so there is this distinction between want and need, and this is the reason. This is the reason that a person really ought to critically think about what is it that I like to do with my scarce resource of time, with my scarce resource of money, and what do I do? What are the things that give me pleasure? Let me think about that. Let me quantify what that is for me, and that, and then find work that supports that passion, and you will be better at the work. You will enjoy the time that you spend there better, uh, and you know the, the, you will get a huge psychic compensation, whatever money they pay you. I mean, oh, think I, of the think of the people that that you've heard on TV say, "I can't believe that they pay me for this." Right. Okay. Yeah, and, no, and what I, they, I totally agree. Right. Yeah. You have the ability to recognize opportunity. Everyone does not have that ability. How can our listeners develop that? You started with childhood, where you took advantage of little opportunities as a small child. I, you know, this is hard for me because I, I have only my own experience. But let me say that what I do know about being an entrepreneur is that the definition of entrepreneur is risk taker. And things are less risky to the extent that you've taken more risk. In other words, if you've taken chances and the world didn't come apart, uh, then you're more apt to be able to take a larger risk the next time, and you become more and more confident in the fact that uh, that you may be able to move in a wider uh, in a wider range than you had thought before. But but it, it is it, it's it's a psychic muscle. In other words, it is scary. I mean, it's like the first time that a child jumps into a swimming pool. Uh, the, after they've done it once and they they enjoy being in the pool, then it's pretty easy to get them to do it a second time. And I think that's what entrepreneuring is all about. And so I I'm very grateful to my mother for having. Uh, taken the time to organize the wagon and the and the peat so that I could I could wander wander through the um, the neighborhood and, and and I'm sure that we didn't make a nickel, you know, for for the effort. But on the other hand, I I I got a psychic gain from that, and so then selling the lemonade wasn't as tough, and and I wasn't afraid to be a caddy and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, so I, I think it's one step at a time. And so what I would encourage your listeners to do is to take a little risk uh, uh see that it's uh you know that you're not going to be bitten by it and then take a little bit more risk it's hard i mean it's against nature to to risk uh especially when there's a uh, when there's a lot at risk but uh but you're not risking much if you're doing stuff that you love uh because the compensation the compensation that you get is not just money The awaited interview personality assessment tool, which you yes. created. Yes. I took it and right. found that it mirrored many of my core personality traits. Can you explain the reason why you developed the tool 
and what is it supposed to do for the person who is taking it? So what is that person supposed to learn, and how can that person use the information? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, uh, the the interview, it's I-N-N-E-R-V-I-E-W, the interview is a... Uh, is an assessment tool which is based upon the idea that there are four traits that once you've pretty much established your identity uh, don't change much. And they are your intellectual capacity, the ordering of your values, velocity, and style. And the idea is, is that if you know these things about yourself, you can find fit because you can also profile every job, every geographical location, every industry, every city. And so, for example, uh, well, let me just say a little bit how it works. The, this, the, as, as you're aware, uh, this is a very unusual assessment tool because there are no right or wrong answers. There are no questions about that, that test uh, whether or not you can do math or uh, uh, remember, any, uh, remember how to spell a word or anything like that. Right. Well, it's not the, an aptitude test of any type or an achievement test. No, but it is an aptitude test. In other words, it will tell you what your aptitude is for most anything, but it's absolutely not an achievement uh, uh, right. test. But I, mean, I guess what I'm saying is it's not an aptitude test in the sense that um, you're trying to assess um, one's aptitude for math, for example. No, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to say – uh, you can project from this whether a person uh, would have an aptitude, for example, uh, to be uh, a doctor or a nurse or something like that. I mean, that's 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 within you. You can look at you can look at the outcomes on this, and then you can you could take the same instrument and give it to 20 excellent doctors, and then what you can do is that you can you can match uh, to that template. And, and determine, you know, what a good doctor is. In other words, what level of capacity, what uh, value ordering, what uh, what velocity, what style uh, fits for people that are excellent in that field. And so, on an objective basis, you can back into the aptitude. It's different than other aptitude tests, and I'm not surprised that uh, that uh, that 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 didn't come out. Because we weren't using it that uh, the way we've used it together, uh, it it wouldn't be apparent. So, uh, but in any event, the uh, what is velocity, Robert? Velocity, yeah, because you've mentioned it a few times. You mentioned it in terms of um, what we talked about as far as fundraising to create the films, Gandhi Gandhi and Hopscotch. Uh, So, what what is velocity? Velocity, uh, probably the way to explain it non-technically for your listeners, is that I believe that uh, that everyone has a metronome, at which uh, and which is the rhythm of their life. And some people, uh, uh, the the metronome goes back slowly, and it's tick, tock, tick, tock. And other people, it races ahead, and it's dit, 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 dit. And we're like that. Some people need uh, four hours of sleep uh, or only require four hours of sleep. Some people need nine. Uh, and And some people walk fast. Some people walk slow. Some people talk fast. Some people talk slow. And so the um, uh, the the idea is is that that velocity is the rate at which we progress along the lines of our interest. The lines of our interest, which is, which is what we were talking about earlier, really dictates what our passion is. So you can only ask somebody questions about, you know, how fast are they moving uh, in their life. The only rational thing to ask them is how how fast are you moving uh, along the lines of your interest or what you care about. 
if you're if you're someone that doesn't care about school uh, or learning then it's not fair uh, if for example you're a standout uh, in ballet you can only be measured on your ballet because it because that's what's important to you and then it becomes important for you to recognize what's important to you and pursue that rather than than try to compete with others that are more interested in things that you have no interest in how can our listeners learn more about the interview personality assessment tool i believe you have a website robert yes uh and the the address is uh your yourinterview dot com and um and anyone that wants to get on the site and and take the instrument uh that's uh, that's how to um uh that's that's the address and we'd welcome uh, anyone to do that i uh, but let me say again that what the output of this is is it comes out it's 12 to 14 pages it's not written in code it's real english and uh, what it's designed to do is to take what you think about yourself and what your experience has been uh in life in terms of of how you think you fit in the world and then what this does is it interprets that and feeds it back to you and it writes a story about you uh, and it's your story and then what you have is something that's in good english and then uh, then it will not be precisely what you think about yourself because we have the limitation of it being a paper and pencil questionnaire but then what you can do is you can sit there and edit it yourself but you will find that it's mainly who you are because it's coming directly from what you've said about yourself well i'll be eager to hear from my listeners as to whether they looked at your site whether they try taking the assessment tool i'll keep you posted my final question how do you balance your personal and professional life? I know that you're married and you have a grown daughter, Robert. Yes, I, I have a daughter and, and two grandbabies that live in Madrid, Spain, and, and uh, my, my wife is a, is a professional person. Uh, and um, we, uh, we have uh, uh, lived in Carefree, Arizona for a long time. And uh, that's where my base is, which uh, is a little uh, a little bedroom community north of Scottsdale, Arizona. Robert, it has been a delightful conversation and a fascinating career story. Well, thank you so much for your interest, and uh, it's uh, good luck to you. I, I think what you're doing is is helping a lot of people, and um, I hope they appreciate what they're getting from you. And you too are helping lots of people. Come back soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Please join me again next Wednesday on May 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stephen Citron, authority extraordinaire on musical therapy, theater. My guest will be Stephen Citron, composer, lyricist, author, lecturer, teacher, and authority on musical theater, who is a product of the Juilliard School of Music. Mr. Citron's book, Songwriting, A Complete Guide to the Craft, is in its 17th edition, and a newly revised edition was recently published. In the field of musical biography, he has written three dual biographies, including Noel and Cole, The Sophisticates, chosen as one of the New York Times Best Books of the Year. At Carnegie Hall in his studio, he taught piano and composition for many years. Citron has published songs here and abroad, accompanied Edith Piaf, and wrote the score, music, and lyrics to one more song, the Judy Garland musical, which lives on after its debut in the mid-1980s. He will share stories of his glamorous life in Paris. Citron is married to celebrity biographer Anne Edwards, and they live in Beverly Hills, California. I interviewed Anne on April 1st. You can listen to that interview on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Learn Out Loud, and drbarrow.com.
drbarbaro.com. That's D-R-B-A-R-R-O.com. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, visit winwithoutcompeting.com and Dr. Barrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O.com. To contact me directly, call 310-441-5305 or email D-R-B-A-R-R-O at winwithoutcompeting.com. Remember this trigger tip, walk down the right fit road and here you're hired. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Success the Right Fit Way, Career Coach One, and Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.